Good morning. Last Sunday we uh, heard the story of the disciples and of Thomas and talked about um, the unlikely turnaround from their hopelessness to their hope. And um, if that was shocking, today's story is um, even more shocking. It's an important story. This story is told more in the New Testament than I think more, maybe more than any other story, maybe except the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, is the story of the conversion of Saul. It's told three times in Acts, and Paul writes it in, in his letters a couple different times. Um, it's an important story in the New Testament. Um, it's the story of how it came to be that Saul, breathing threats and murder, came to be a follower of Jesus. Here's the story. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he couldn't see, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying. And he, has seen a vision, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard, many, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few chapters earlier, Saul is standing by. And a man named Stephen has been arrested. And Stephen was a deacon 
And he was in charge with making sure that women who had lost their husbands and who didn't speak the common language had access to the resources and the food that the church had. That was what Stephen was tasked with. He was essentially in charge of the meal baby, making sure that the people had food who needed it. Um, And while he was carrying out this work, he used the name of Jesus, which got you arrested at that time. And so he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the ruling elite, and he's told to answer for what he's done and the name that he's invoking. And Stephen, young Stephen, preaches a sermon to end all sermons. Ah, it's one of my, it's, it's a beautiful sermon. And he, he preaches wonderfully and the angels stand to give him an ovation. But the Sanhedrin who are listening to him, rage fills their face and they rush at him, knock him off his feet. They gnash their teeth as they drag him outside of the city so that they can stone him. And they take their cloaks off so that they can get a full rotation on their arms and they start aiming rocks at him. And they lay their coats at a, man, at a man's feet whose name is Saul. And Saul nods approvingly and says, God's will, God's will. Stephen is the first that we know of to die uh, in the early church, but he's not the last. This is the beginning of the persecution for the church. It's now, followers of the way are now outlaws, and invoking the name of Jesus gets you arrested, bound, brought to Jerusalem for trial. Persecution has begun to hit the church, and it scattered the church. And so in in the chapter right before this one, we have the story of of Philip, who's one of the apostles, and he ends up going down to Samaria. He ends up scattered, and so he goes to Samaria, and he begins to preach the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans had been the enemies, in some ways, of the Israelites. They were outcasts. It's not clear at this point when we're reading if the Samaritans are part of the plan for followers of the way, for the Christian church. But Philip ends up in Samaria, and so he starts preaching the gospel, and the Samaritans hear it, and when they hear it, they rejoice. And it's becoming obvious that there is no category of people that God views with animosity for the church. God has no enemies. Philip ends up even going further south down to Ethiopia where he meets an Ethiopian eunuch and Ethiopian eunuch is trying to understand the scriptures and Philip explains the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch who also receives the good news and is baptized. And it's becoming obvious to the early church in this section of Acts that the Christian God, that Jesus has no enemies, that there is no category of people outside of God's redemptive plan. And in the story that we have today, we see that there is no individual, no singular person that is outside of God's scope of reconciliation. No one who cannot be redeemed. The kids' curriculum, the big idea for this morning, and the big idea for us, is that God refuses to have enemies. Even in the midst of suffering, God refuses to have enemies, and so must the church. Saul has certainly positioned himself as the enemy of the church of Jesus. That's how he views himself. He views what this church is teaching uh, as being not only false, but detrimental to, to Jewish law and custom. 
He imagines that it is his responsibility to take down his enemy, and he uses whatever means necessary to do that. Jesus appears to Saul as the one he is persecuting, as the one who Saul views as his enemy. But while Saul treats Jesus as his enemy, Jesus does not return the treatment. Jesus does not view Saul as enemy. He has chosen not to view Saul as his enemy. And in fact, just the opposite. Saul has murdered. He is hunting human beings for their religious beliefs. And yet he has not done something that has changed the reality that God still views Saul as son. The story, uh, as, I was, as I was reading the story, it reminded me of the story of the prodigal son, just this encounter on a road while traveling somewhere. It just made me think of other encounters on the road in Scripture. And of course, in this, the story of the prodigal son is, is, is remarkable in that the son has disowned the father and gone away, realizes his error and is on his way back to the father. And the son certainly expects that the father will have disowned him by the time that he gets back. But as they meet on the road and the father runs out to the son, the miraculous thing is that while the son had disowned the father, the father never disowns the son. The father never regards this person as anyone other than his child. But in this story, Saul has not seen the error of his ways. He is on a road in the middle of threats and murder. He is in the midst of his threats and murderous intentions, and yet Jesus encounters him and asks him to change his ways because Jesus has not given up on calling Saul's son. You have not done anything that has diminished God's love for you. You have not done anything that has caused God to stop calling you his child. You cannot do anything that will cause God to call you his enemy. No sin in your past, no hidden thoughts, no actions yet to come will ever cause God to view you as someone other than God's very own, God's beloved, one who has the very imprint of God in your being. God refuses to have enemies. And even when Saul insists on being God's enemy, God's yes to Saul triumphs over Saul's no. Jesus appears to him and he says that stronger than your actions against me are my actions towards you. The grain of the universe is set by God's movement towards us as friend and not as enemy. But Saul also needs to be reconciled to the community of faith. God comes to Saul, and, 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 and there's this great epiphany, and we see that God has refused to call Saul enemy. But his next instructions are to go join the community of faith that for the past year or so, Saul has set himself against. Jesus self-identifies with the church that Saul is persecuting, and the very community that he has been set on murdering, slaughtering, will now be asked to accept him. Now the enemy love of God needs to be extended by the church. And uh, Aaron writes about this a bit, uh, Aaron Keeker, in, in, his, in his dissertation that he sent me. And he notes that God's spirit will need to be at work 
in Saul's reception into the community of the way, just as significantly as God's Spirit was at work in Saul's conversion. If it required an act of God's Spirit to convince one man of his error, it will take an incredible and equally miraculous work of God's Spirit to convince a group of believers that now they ought to invite the wolf into the sheepfold. Ananias says as much when the Lord appears to Ananias and says, Ananias, here's what I'm up to. And Ananias says, no, 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 here's what he's been up to. And I heard that he also has letters uh, that permit him to, upon meeting me, arrest me and take me off to Jerusalem. You can understand Ananias' fear. And then, of course, later on, when, when Paul goes up, uh, with Saul, who becomes Paul, um, goes up to the church leaders, there's an equal holding him at an arm's length. Um, and, and you can understand why. The church, the church must also refuse to have enemies. God refuses to view Saul as an enemy, and the church must view him in the same way. The church, we, must insist on not having enemies. What does this look like? Um, it, it, it doesn't mean... That, um, that whatever your enemy is up to ought to be okay with you. And, uh, Saul, Saul isn't um, pat on the back for what he's did, and well, we'll just, we'll just forget about what's happened. Um, he, has to, he has to repent, he has to turn, he has to make a complete um, 180 from the way his life was going. To whom might you feel spite or antagonism? Who do we view with hatred or antipathy? On whom do you wish ill? God refuses to have enemies. We must refuse to have enemies. In his sermon on Jesus' command to love your enemies, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, says, says this. says, uh, Some would say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. No, far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. And he gives three pieces of advice on how to love your enemies, on how to refuse to have enemies. And the first thing he says is, one, examine yourself. Anytime you find that you're viewing someone as your enemy, examine yourself. Because you will not be able to love them unless you've been able to love yourself and understood why you are viewing this person as your enemy. He says, second, find the good in your enemy. Examine yourself and then find the good in your enemy. And lastly, he says, when you are given the opportunity to crush your enemy, to be proven right, to gain the upper hand, that is precisely the moment in which you must not do it. How difficult when you are given the opportunity to show your enemy that you have been proven right, to choose not to do it. As I was thinking about this idea of God refusing to have enemies and the church being called to do the same thing, I was reminded of um, the Amish community uh, from Pennsylvania that was attacked in um, 
in 2006, I had to go back and remind myself of this story. I don't know if you remember it, but there was a hostage situation in an Amish community um, in 2006 where um, a gunman ended up killing um, yeah, five, five children in the community and shooting more and, um, before taking his own life. And uh, one of the grandfathers of the victims that night in a gathering of that community, he said, um, quote, we must not think evil of this man. And all I really remember about the story is, is, um, is the response of that community, you know, um, being the headline story, their immediate impulse to forgive and, and, and quotes like this, we must not think evil of this man. Um, the mother of the, the, of the man who did this, you know, was of course devastated, grieved, confused. Um, I, I can't even, I, I can't imagine, you know, you know, what she was going through. And, um, and then she showed up for the burial of her son and there were over 40 members of that Amish community who had come to attend the burial of his son and they, and they said you know something to the effect of this woman just lost her son and um and we're you know this isn't the quote but essentially we refuse to view her as our enemy um and there are a lot there were a lot of articles published at the 10 year anniversary about the pain and the wounds that this community still carries it doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean there isn't still intense grief that that community will carry with them into eternity but they've made the conscious decision that they won't carry with them the hatred um, that would be so easy to feel. Um, The early church in this moment in the life of the early church is learning uh, that God views no category of human being as his enemy and God will not consider even someone like Saul as an enemy. Though Saul certainly behaves in that way. And the irony of living in a way that doesn't treat people as enemies is that it leads to suffering. And you'd think that it would lead to peace with all people. But in fact, it doesn't. And God uses, there's this line in, in the story that, you know, God says, I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And it sounds a little bit like God saying, he's going to pay in the second half of his life for what he's done first half or you know he's really going to regret all those all those decisions and I'm really going to punish him for what he's done um but as you continue to read the life of Paul that's not at all the way Paul experiences his own suffering that's not at all how his life carries on um as Paul uh as Paul turns in his life from inflicting suffering um to being the bearer of suffering he, he says things like, I count it all joy. His life is characterized by joy and hope and peace. But as he begins to live a life where he does not treat anyone as his enemy, he finds that he's the recipient of the suffering that he used to inflict. But Paul characterizes his life in Christ as joy. And during one of his trials, you know, he's... he's um, uh, He's on trial and he's in chains and um, he he doesn't um, he doesn't idolize suffering. He says, "I wish 
that you would be in the same circumstance as I am except for these chains. Um, But Paul finds that his life will be characterized by suffering because he refuses to treat anyone as an enemy. And when you live in a world of competition, of us versus them, of winners and losers, but you refuse to view people as enemies, you will suffer. There may be situations where if you do not view your fellow employees or your family members or if you do not view your fellow human beings as obstacles but view them instead as creatures made in the image of God, it may cost you. Martin Luther King Jr. closes that that sermon with this. He says, So this morning as I look into your eyes and into the eyes all over America, all over the world, I say to you, I love you. And I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. We will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to do good to those persons who hated us, And we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. God refuses to have enemies. We must refuse to have enemies. And God views those who are opposed to him as God's very own children. And the church, you and me, we are called to view all people as God's very own children, as our sisters and brothers, even those who we might otherwise consider enemies. Let's pray. God, we, uh, I'm not unaware of how difficult this is. It's, um, to preach it is one thing and to live it is another. And um, so I pray that as we enter into our weeks, as we encounter people uh, that are difficult to live with, people that we might easily count as enemies, I pray that your same Holy Spirit would give us the power, the strength, the courage, the humility to view them as people that you love, people that you have not given up hope on. I pray that you would remind us that you've not given up hope on us. Thank you that you have decided in Christ not to view us as enemies to view us as your children and to love us in that way. And I pray that we would extend that same grace and love into the world this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.